This week, Musk intends to close Twitter deal. Cabbage files for Chapter 11. Jewel Labs prepares for in-court restructuring. Judge Isger approves Altera DS. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. For this week's deep dive, Reorg's Kevin Eckhart joins us for a deep dive segment discussing his recent experience moderating a panel discussion with bankruptcy judges, practitioners, and academics at the Chicago Conference on Judicial Valuation. It's Friday, October 7th. On Thursday, the Delaware judge overseeing the Twitter Elon Musk litigation stayed the litigation until October 28th to permit the parties to close in the transaction. On Tuesday, Musk filed a statement with the SEC declaring that he intends to proceed to closing of the transaction contemplated by the April 25th merger, pending receipt of the proceeds of the necessary debt financing, provided that the Delaware Transfer Court enter an immediate stay of the action. On Thursday, Musk filed a motion to stay litigation in the Delaware Chancery Court, arguing that changed circumstances have effectively mooted the action. Musk also stated that the debt financing parties are working cooperatively to fund the close, and the closing is expected to occur on or around October 28th. Twitter has since responded to Musk, calling Musk's stay motion an invitation to further mischief and delay. Twitter has also claimed that a corporate representative for one of Musk's lenders has testified that Musk has not communicated to them that he intends to close the transaction. Electronic cigarette manufacturer and marketer Juul Labs, which faces lawsuits alleging it marketed vaping products to underage teens as it battles with the FDA to continue to sell its products in the United States, is preparing for a Chapter 11 filing and needs to secure adequate liquidity to fund operations and other cash requirements, according to sources. In an emailed statement, a spokesperson for Juul said the company is exploring a variety of options, including various potential financing alternatives to protect the business so that it can continue offering its products to adult consumers. In September, the company settled claims brought by 34 states related to alleged marketing of e-cigarettes to underage users, agreeing to pay between $438 million and $476 million over 6 to 10 years. The settlement also includes strong marketing sales and distribution restrictions. Notwithstanding the settlement, the company still faces various unresolved lawsuits, including in California, New York, and Chicago, which did not participate in the settlement. Juul also has to deal with multi-district litigation in the Northern District of California, including personal injury claims, class actions, and claims by governmental and tribal entities. Cabbage Inc., doing business as K-Servicing, an Atlanta-based servicer of Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP loans, filed for Chapter 11 protection on Monday, seeking to liquidate through a toggle Chapter 11 plan. The plan proposes two paths depending on whether the debtor is able to reach agreements with partner banks and the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. The first option, or the funded transaction, provides that either the company continues to service the remaining loan portfolio after the plan effective date, or the company and each applicable partner bank and the Federal Reserve work cooperatively to transfer servicing to a third-party loan servicer. The alternative unfunded transaction scenario would occur if the debtors are unsuccessful in securing funding through negotiations with the Federal Reserve and Customers Bank, or KUBI, one of the two lenders of the, comp- the company services PPP loans on behalf of, and are unable to service the loan portfolio during the Chapter 11 cases. In this scenario, the plan would provide for a rejection of the servicing agreements with partner banks, servicing the debtor's PPP liquidity facility portfolio, or PPPLF, and transferring the PPPLF collateral to the Federal Reserve. The debtors say that they were close to an agreement with the Federal Reserve at the time of the Chapter 11 filing and that discussions with Kubi had progressed significantly leading up to the Chapter 11 filing. The company sold substantially all of its assets to American Express or 
in 2020 for $750 million. The MX sale excluded a small portfolio of non-PPP small business legacy loans and the company's PPP business. Disputes have arisen with respect to related transition services agreement, and the company says that its board is evaluating whether any viable related cause of action. Debtors are subject to various state and federal investigations related to the PPP loan program with respect to alleged deceptive and or unfair acts or practices in advertising, marketing, underwriting, originating, and servicing the loans. At an uncontested hearing on Friday morning, Judge Marvin Isker conditionally approved the Altera Infrastructure Debtors Disclosure Statement and also approved the DIP on a final basis. A combined hearing on plan confirmation and final DS approval is now set for November 4th. Debtors amended plan disclosure statement reflects a global compromise between the debtors, the official committee of unsecured creditors, and an ad hoc group of Altera parent note holders. The deal is supported by 91% of bank loan claims, approximately 65.7% of unsecured note holders, as well as equity sponsor Brookfield. The debtors say the global compromise puts an end to further protracted and expensive litigation with respect to the contested Brookfield-provided dip facility, which contains releases in favor of Brookfield, including regarding the 2021 exchange transaction. The amended plan provides for an equity split between Brookfield and note holders, in addition to a rights offering with participation by note holders, which avoids dilution of their equity share. Top red stories this week included, equity-based fees can increase returns for dip lenders, limit risk when fees additive to par plus recoveries from cash and new debt. Larger equity component within fee structure leads to higher returns at plan value. Zantac MDL plaintiffs say a new study shows connection between antacid and cancer, seek to introduce new expert opinions to counter defendants' causation arguments. Court opinion review, PJT denied compensation bump in LATAM. Bayer stumps for MDL process, backstop blues in LATAM. Court denies PG&E's petition for en banc rehearing of Ninth Circuit solvent debtor post-petition interest decision. And now here's Kathy Ta with The Week Ahead. Hello, this is Kathy Ta, and The Week Ahead is a busier week of events, so let's get to it. On Tuesday, October 11th, the TPC group debtors will be in court for a status conference, including addressing a potential continuance of their motion to estimate tort claims at $0 for planned voting purposes. The case parties are at loggerheads over whether the estimation process should occur before or at planned confirmation. The GWG Holdings debtors will also be in court on Tuesday, October 11th. The debtors will seek approval of an alternative financing option with Vita Capital. If approved, the debtors would be authorized to exercise the right but not the obligation to utilize the replacement facility to refinance in full the final dip facility with Chatford. On Wednesday, October 12th, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals is slated to hear oral arguments in two separate appeals. First, in the LATAM Airlines plan confirmation appeal, claimants that Brazilian subsidiary TLA will continue their campaign for payment of post-petition interest, or PPI. The unsecured claimants say they are entitled to PPI under the debtor's plan because the plan classifies their claims as unimpaired and distributes value to TLA shareholders. Second, in Windstream Holdings, unsecured notes indentured trustee U.S. Bank will seek to UPEN the debtor settlement of the master lease arrangement dispute with the Unity Group. The settlement provided certain value allocation in connection with the debtor's confirmed plan that the indentured trustee disputed. That same day, the Aero Technologies debtors will ask Judge Jeffrey Graham to authorize mediation in their Chapter 11 cases focused on Chapter 11 plan and confirmation-related issues. Although there is a continuing mediation in the Combat Arms Airplex multi-district litigation, the debtors have not participated in that mediation because their chosen co-mediator was not available to attend. Demarist, Talk, America, and Cypress Mines debtors will also be in court on Wednesday, October 12th to defend their Chapter 11 cases against dismissal. A group of insurers say the case should be dismissed to allow Talk claimants to return to the tort system given that the nearly year-long mediation process has failed to produce a global resolution. 
On Thursday, October 13th, the TPC group debtors will return to court to get a four-month extension of their exclusive plan filing and solicitation periods. The UCC opposes the requested relief, calling out the debtors for failing to work consensually to resolve tort claims. At the same time, tort claimants will seek clarification of the automatic stay so as to proceed with the discovery and other proceedings in the multi-district litigation against non-debtor defendants, including the debtors' equity sponsors. The Toys R Us True Creditor Litigation Trust will seek approval of a settlement resolving the directors and officers litigation on Thursday, October 13th. Under the settlement, carriers would pay an undisclosed amount of the value of remaining insurance. Also scheduled for Thursday, October 13th in PWM Property Management is the West Madison Debtors Request for Approval of a Disclosure Statement Supplement. The supplement is in connection with a deal the debtors reach with their West Madison mortgage lenders. If the DS supplement is approved, the debtors would be slated for a planned confirmation hearing on October 27th. Turning to Friday, October 14th, the LED and automotive lighting manufacturer LumiLED's will ask for confirmation of their first amended prepackaged plan in addition to disclosure statement approval and final dip approval at a combined hearing. The prepacked plan, which would hand control of the company to first lien lenders with existing equity canceled, was amended to exclude equity sponsor Phillips from the plan's releases. The debtors entered Chapter 11 on August 29th. As for earnings, they will be reported by Commercial Meadows on Thursday, October 13th. That's it for me on this Friday, October 7th, historical fact of the day. On this day, back in 1949, the Republic of East Germany was formed in the Soviet occupation zone of Germany and lasted until 1990 when the two Germanys were reunited. The sequence of events leading to the reunification started with the opening of the border, also known as the Iron Curtain between Austria and Hungary at a peace demonstration called the Pan-European Picnic on August 19, 1989. The demonstration set off a chain reaction leading to the dissolution of the Soviet Union in December 1991 and the end of the Cold War. Now back to you in New York. Reorg's very own Kevin Eckhart is back to discuss the alchemy evaluation, one of the more interesting intersections of bankruptcy and finance. In September, Kevin participated in a conference on judicial valuation sponsored by the University of Chicago Law School, where he moderated a panel made up of bankruptcy judges and practitioners on the subject of judicial valuation. Kevin, welcome back to the podcast. And before we get into some of the highlights of the panel discussion, why don't you tell us why does valuation matter in bankruptcy? Yeah, you know, it was uh, it, it was interesting that the conference didn't really dwell on this and just sort of assumed the importance of, of valuation. And by valuation, basically, we're talking about enterprise valuation, um, valuing either all uh, an entire group of debtors in most cases, um, or each individual debtor. Um, often happens if there is uh, if there is are creditors of of some particular debtor. Um, and, and the real importance here is, is twofold and the conference focused on two contexts, which I agree are the most important. Um, the first is for bankruptcy, which is sort of our focus. Um, it, it's important in a number of contexts. When you have an asset sale of the company, um, either part or all of its assets, um, then valuation is crucial. You know, people will object to uh, the, the price that's being paid as unreasonable um, often if it means that there's no value left um, in, in the waterfall for them. Um, it, it also is important in valuing secured claims. Um, if someone has a claim on all of the debtor's assets and claims 
or, or they claim to hold a, a lien on all of the debtor's assets for 10 billion in debt, then unsecured creditors will argue that the company is actually worth 12 billion. So there's 2 billion of value for them. Um, it's important for the absolute priority rule, again, for that waterfall under a plan. Um, and this is most frequently where fights come up. Um, at confirmation, junior creditors who are getting nothing under a plan or getting less than they think they should will argue that there is enough value in the company that they should get um, some distribution under the plan. And if they are not, then it is a violation of the absolute priority rule um, or a violation of their best interests, of the best interest tests and the whole liquidation analysis. So the value of a company in bankruptcy, it, it triggers a lot of different um, issues under the code. And so it's, it's sort of in the background in every case, right? I mean, it's the, the financial projections lead into the valuation, lead into the liquidation analysis. And there's a reason why there's, there's a valuation analysis attached to every, every proposed plan and disclosure statement. Um, the other context that was discussed at the conference, um, which we'll talk a little bit less about, is M&A litigation. Um, very often in cases where a, a company is being bought, um, there will be dissenting shareholders who don't want to sell their shares. Let's just say uh, Elon tomorrow decides to buy Twitter for $25 a share. Twitter agrees with that. Um, generally, minority shareholders will have ability, the ability to opt out of that and bring under Delaware law what they call, and it's almost always Delaware law, uh, what they call an appraisal action to say, no, we should get $35 a share. And um, the, the merger will go through and those minority shareholders will have a cause of action against the buyer for the difference between um, what the, the deal price was and what they think the company is worth. And obviously when, you have, when you're valuing shares, you have to value the whole company. Um, so this comes up in chancery litigation in Delaware all the time. Um, it also comes up in the sort of ancillary context where you know if management says no to a deal that offers a certain price for the company, um, then shareholders may sue for a breach of fiduciary duty for not taking the offer. And then they have to argue over whether the offer was fair. And it sort of goes back to the asset sale issue. Um, the valuation comes up in litigation as well, often in the damages analysis, um, but less often and less formally. And it's not really what the conference was concerned about. The conference was a bunch of bankruptcy professors, economists, bankruptcy judges, um, chancery judges or chancellors, which I think is, is still just hilarious that they use this term from like the Dickensian era and, um, and, and practitioners, bankruptcy practitioners and chancery practitioners. Um, and, and the conference was focused on this idea that there's a uh, University of Chicago has a, an economic, obviously a very, very strong economics background. And a lot of the professors were from the University of Chicago and, and talking about their theories about the efficient market, but the, the idea was just to bring a bunch of experts together and plus me and say, you know, what, what is the state of judicial valuation right now? And what is, what are the issues? What are the problems? What are your suggestions for improving the process? And what really struck me about this and, and what I thought we should talk about and would be interesting for, for everyone listening to hear is the real divergence between the way um, academics view this subject of valuation and the way practitioners, especially bankruptcy practitioners, view it. And I was moderating a panel of bankruptcy practitioners 
So it, it really struck me, you know, I sit through the first panel on the bankruptcy side of the conference, and there are several bankruptcy professors, law professors, people with law degrees and PhDs in economics from the University of Chicago, from Berkeley, from Columbia, you know, very prestigious organizations. And they spent a considerable amount of time talking about um, their issues with judicial valuation and the valuation litigation process and what's wrong with it. Because it's clear the, the practitioners feel that there are the professionals, excuse me, uh, <laughs> the academics feel that there's something very, very wrong. That, the, that when, a ju when judges decide how much a company is worth in bankruptcy or in chancery litigation, they're really, really wrong a lot. Um, they didn't say, of course, there were a bunch of judges in the room that didn't say that outright. But, you know, their issues were, um, were with the accuracy of judicial valuations. They had an underlying, there's an underlying fundamental premise here that um, the goal of judicial valuation and litigation over the valuation of companies is, is about getting to a true value of the company. Is this company worth $10 a share? Is it worth $20 a share? Is it worth $750? The important thing to them is what is it really worth, and is is the number that comes out of court reflective of what they view as the proper academic methodology in valuing companies. You know, they talked about the discounted cash flow method, and the, the comparable companies method, and the problems um, with expert testimony that employ these methods in court cases and how often experts use improper methodology or, or take into account um, factors that are already in a formula so as to weigh the analysis and basically get the number to where the expert's client, one of the parties, um, says that the valuation should be at. So in a bankruptcy, you know, the debtor will propose a plan and the plan will propose distributions to each class. And underlying that are the financial projections and the valuation based on those financial projections. And their point, the professors was, you know, it really feels like the valuations presented by debtors in support of their plan and the valuations presented by say the UCC in objecting to a plan because they say it doesn't give their class enough are goal oriented, that they're trying to reach the number they want. And they kind of cook the books a little bit. As, as one of you know, the professors don't want to say the experts are lying. They're not. Um, everybody agrees they're trying their best, but it sure seems like um, incomplete or, or, or inaccurate methodologies are being employed to get to these numbers. And then the, their other big problem was with judges um, splitting the baby. You know, to, to the professors, and I think this is where their idea of accuracy comes out most, to the professors, they're very concerned with the idea that one expert will say a company's worth 10 billion. Another expert, the, the opposing expert will say the company's worth 20 billion, and the judge will say, ah, oh, it's 15. Because to them, that simply isn't accurate, right? It, it's, a, it's purely artificial. When you have two experts presenting these opinions, the judge's job is not to say which one's right, which one's wrong, which one's closer, which one's further, or maybe they're they're both valid and I'll just plug it in the middle. Um, the judge's obligation is to say, is to take from each one the best methodology and the best calculations and come up with his own number, right? 
there was even um, a presentation by a professor, Eric Talley at Columbia, that I found extremely fascinating about his uh, work with a couple of other professors at Berkeley coming up with an AI, a machine learning program to value companies that would take all of the accepted scientific economist published methodology, take inputs from the debtors or from you know, the expert, the, the financial experts who say, you know, what the EBITDA is gonna be five years from now, what's the interest rates five years from now, take all of this into account and spit out a number. And uh, Professor Talley said he thinks this is ready for testimony in court, right? That he, he should be able to put someone, party should be able to put someone on the stand and say, they're wrong, they're wrong. My, this AI, which takes into account all of the information um, and makes a minimum of judgment calls, um, it spits out this number and that's the right number. So, uh, you know, what this reflects is all of this discussion about methodology and expert witnesses and judges not splitting the baby reflects what the academics feel is the, the goal of the process, which is coming to a real number. So then I'm moderating a, a panel of bankruptcy professionals from big prestigious firms from Kirkland and Ropes and Gray and Paul Weiss. And I had a difficult time getting them to talk because they don't disagree on, on very much on this. But the practitioner's view is this is an adversary process. Getting the accurate number is not important. What's important is that each party gets to present their number fully and completely and have their expert and come testify in court and say what his methodology is and present his case. And the other side gets to do the same. And a number is reached. And then the accuracy of that number is totally irrelevant to the practitioners um, and, and largely to the judges too, from, from what the judges' comments were. A couple, Judge Drain was there, Judge Jones from Houston. You know, their, their feelings seem to be that that's fine. It's about the process of valuation. And if a party's expert has bad methodology and the judge doesn't recognize it, or um, the other side's methodology is better, but the judge just doesn't think they're as credible on the stand or, or don't answer the questions as readily, that's fine, that's the system. You know, they just kind of threw up their hands and would say, huh? So I'd present hypotheticals to them and say things like, you know, what, well, what about this? Is it a problem that um, within six months after this, after company X, um, got its plan confirmed using a valuation that totally iced out unsecured creditors. So let's say the company's value wasn't eaten up entirely by secured creditors. Plan gets confirmed because the company value judge says this company's not worth enough to get any value down to the UCC. And then six months after the company emerges, it pays a dividend to shareholders. You know, the shareholders being the former secured lenders who now control reorganized equity and thus the board of directors. I said, you know, is that a problem? Does that undermine the accuracy of judicial valuation? And they just kind of looked at me strange, like undermine the accuracy, that's not the point. The point is a plan got confirmed and, and everybody, the UCC that was objecting to it got to put its expert up and the judge picked the value that the debtors said or came to their own figure based on the, the evidence presented um, and its accuracy 
in the future, in the real world, is, is totally irrelevant, right? In fact, my suspicion is that practitioners don't want, not only don't care a lot about whether the valuation is accurate, they don't want an accurate valuation. Because if you've got a plan that says the company's worth 10 billion, and you've got objectors who say the company's worth 20 billion, and then you have the AI get on the judge says, well, I want to hear from an independent uh, voice here, you know, that's not one side or the other. I want to get my own. So I'm going to plug in the AI that Professor Talley's developed. And it says the value is 38 mil, 8 billion, or it says the value is 2 billion. Everybody's unhappy. What do you do then? You know, even the UCC often would prefer um, having a plan confirmed um, to having a situation like that where suddenly everyone has to recalibrate all of their expectations. Um, it would be actively disruptive to the bankruptcy valuation process. And that's, and I, I can't really speak to, to, to the way the chancery works, but I suspect it'd be the same thing. Um, it would be actively disruptive to the system to have an independent, accurate valuation that was not sort of tied to where the parties wanted the case to go. Um, and it would potentially introduce all kinds of problems in getting plans confirmed and all kinds of uncertainty. And it might also discourage settlement. Um, it might also discourage parties. You know, if you've got, again, you've got the committee at 20, you've got the debtors at 10. Maybe they go to 11 and that gets some value to the UCC. Well, if they're not, if they have no idea, if they're concerned that the real value is actually well below or well above that range, you may not be able to get a settlement done. So, you know, all of the sort of ideas I had, you know, I thought I would go in there and ask the practitioners, well, what are the solutions to this problem? But I realized that the practitioners don't think there's a problem. Yeah, Kevin, Kevin, truth sells, but who's buying, right? Right. I mean, it, it sort of gets to the essential idea of the adversary system, right? Of our like, of our our legal system, this common law structure that was started when, like, you know, it, uh, Lord Tomlinson and Lord Ashworth disagreed on who owned that deer that was shot by Lord Ashworth near the property line, and they went to the king, and the king said, "Well, last time." I resolved one of these. Well, the deer belonged to the guy who shot it. Um, that's our legal system 700 years or a thousand years later. And it relies entirely on this idea of the process being legitimate, right? And the process being the only end in itself. It's, it's the process of putting your witness up there, having him ask questions, uh, an, an inexpert, although sophisticated judge, you know, none of these judges have PhDs in economics, but, or are experts in any, in these particular industries. But this is the whole idea that you just accept this. And it's both disturbing because the truth and the, the accuracy of what comes out of these proceedings is not entirely relevant. Um, and so there's no, there's no outcome consideration, right? It's just, it went into the system and it came out. But what's heartening about it is that generally when it comes out, everybody accepts it, right? Nobody's, uh, nobody's getting their torches and going over to the, to the debtor's headquarters and taking over because the judge um, valued the company in such a way as to deprive them of any recovery from the Chapter 11 case, right? Everybody just agrees that what Judge Jones or Judge Drain or 
or Judge Isger say is the value of this company, as long as everybody put their expert up there and the judge says X, Y, Z, no matter how inaccurate it may be, um, generally nobody really questions that. And that's sort of a, a testament. So it's an interesting area that sort of got me thinking about a lot about, you know, this this very antiquated system we have that is so focused on process um, and and the the pluses or minuses of it, right? Oh. I mean, that's kind of, that's getting kind of high end of the clouds right there. I mean, you may have to pull me back down. No, I, no, I mean, it's, it, it, we have to get into a philosophical discussion about what bankruptcy is and what it's for. I mean, and I mean, if everything worked efficiently and perfectly, right? We wouldn't be in bankruptcy at all. And in fact, I mean, it depends on who you ask, right? But the bankruptcy process is there on some level to preserve efficiency, right? Because, uh, right. because a liquidation, a liquidation isn't, isn't going to benefit anybody, right? So we've, we've already submitted, everyone's kind of, when we're in bankruptcy, everyone's kind of submitted to the idea that, that the, the regular processes and a search for truth and accuracy have clearly broken down and this is this is the best outcome possible i mean i guess you, you, there's no reason why you couldn't have an overlay of increased accuracy like you're saying with a more i don't know technically accurate analysis or you know machine learning but it just it's 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 yeah but it, would it improve anything right uh, would it improve outcomes in bankruptcy if parties filing for bankruptcy and proposing a plan had to consider whether an entirely accurate valuation was possible. And I think it would. I think it would really, uh, you're right about the, the efficiency, and this is a struggle we have with bankruptcy all the time, right? Every bankruptcy case is filed with its end in sight in big cases. When the case is filed, Everybody assumes there's going to be a plan confirmed or there's going to be a sale of assets um, vaguely along traditional lines uh, with similar companies, similar large companies. And we're just sort of dancing until the end over, you know, this issue or that. But in the end, you know, the, the, the end of the bankruptcy case is already in sight when it begins. And that comes from this idea of efficiency, that it's better to get an imperfect result quickly than it is to get a perfect result slowly or messily. And this came out in the idea that that the one, one of the things, the other things the practitioners all agreed on is they hate valuation trials. They hate doing them. They try to avoid them whenever possible. You know, we have notable ones, Judge Jones did Chesapeake where they had a seven day valuation trial and they want nothing to do with it. They really want to avoid these disputes and settle on a valuation that everybody can agree on. And again, that's gonna be the least accurate valuation. That split the baby compromise valuation, that's much worse than a judge saying, I agree with the expert whose methodology is questionable, because at least that's a methodology. But again, it's our system where if everybody agrees on this, it doesn't matter whether it's right. If everybody agreed, you know, the moon was made of green cheese, the moon would be made of green cheese, and we'd all move on to the next case. And it's kind of fascinating um, I, I think often about the problems in our system and the over-efficiency, but I think it's a testament to how well this creaky old system works 
that cases get confirmed and companies do move on. And yeah, there are some flaws in the system with, you know, with valuation. I think to me, the key is these cases where, where sponsors will cash out three months, six months, it happened to Chesapeake. And yet, you know, it all sort of functions well enough to get, to keep the economy moving, keep people employed and, and keep uh, value in circulation rather than being destroyed. So I think it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's a great it's a great example of good old American pragmatism, because, you know, if 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 put into this situation, let's say the academics and experts were put into this situation in the end. Right. When you have multiple parties, is it even possible? Right. To to come to a final. I don't know. Absolute number without compromise, like a postmodern idea of what is truth. (laughs) <laughs> and is there a real number? And is it meaningful? I think it's telling that the American system, based on the English system, so it's kind of old-timey English practicality that we've that we've adopted, um, like the Romans stole everything from the Greeks. Um, but I think that it's telling that that the common law system and our system of bankruptcy was really put together by practitioners mm-hmm. over time, gradually, and. If you gave the professors the opportunity, if you said, you know, draft a bankruptcy code and, 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 you know, the bankruptcy code was allegedly a clean sheet in 1978, but it wasn't really, it builds a lot on, on bankruptcy act and on old precedents. If you ask the, the, the professors to do a bankruptcy code, it, it, it may not work very well. In fact, I think it would work terribly. And I think that's the experience internationally when you have Academics put together the civil code, you know, the, 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 the Napoleonic codes upon which so many other countries are based. Um, and I studied in the Netherlands, so I studied a little, little um, civil law. When you ask them to do that, those systems, especially in the bankruptcy area, have generally not worked well. And, they, and most countries have adopted um, some form of the bankruptcy codes structure, if not the practice. Um, so in this area, perhaps it, it's like you said, it's there's many areas in which pragmatism can be a problem in the common law and where we, we should pay more attention to outcomes. But maybe bankruptcy isn't one of them. I wasn't no. sold on the academics concern. I came out of the panel with the, the practitioners, which was difficult, the most difficult I've ever moderated because everybody kind of agreed on things. Um, I came out of it feeling like the system is not is 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 dodging a bullet by not listening to the professionals or to the the professors in some ways. You know, I I tend to agree with the professors a lot on things like third party releases and that kind of thing. But on valuation and economics, ironically, I feel like the economists might mess up the system if we let them take over. You know, there's I think that you you're also you're also um, honing in on, I think, uh, interesting inherent tension in in bankruptcy that just I, probably should be there where the econ- the same economists that would argue that the valuation uh, the, va- the the you know enterprise valuation or company valuation that happens in bankruptcy is not accurate would also argue that the american bankruptcy system preserves value better than other systems yeah oh yeah no doubt right so a professor out there who'd say this is a bad system. Right. So we're preserving value by getting valuations wrong. 
I mean, I guess we're doing something right here, right? Right. As long, I mean, that's the American way, as long as it works. Or, or as engineers always say, it ain't dumb if it works. Yeah. All right, All right Kevin. Well, thanks maybe, for the discussion. Good, yeah. good thinking. Maybe one day, one day we'll we'll find out how much Black Acre is actually worth. And we'll uh, have you back to talk about it. Oh, Black Acre, White Acre, and Green Acre. <laughs> All right, we, we'll leave it at that. Talk to you later, David. All right, thanks, Kevin. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. You can find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next Friday.